I'd like to take a moment to thank my mom for listening to every episode. Now, my mom is the real reason you're listening to this show right now, but the sponsors have a little something to do with it as well. So I'd like to thank our sponsors too. Clio, TimeSolve, Alert Communications, and Scorpion. Now more than ever, an effective marketing strategy is one of the most important things your law firm can have, and Scorpion can help. With nearly 20 years of experience serving the legal industry, Scorpion has proven methods to help you get the high-value cases you deserve. Join thousands of attorneys across the country who have turned to Scorpion for effective marketing and technology solutions. For a better way to grow your practice, visit scorpionlegal.com. It's the Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest Sri Sharma, a round of heat index, and then we show you how to increase your revenue 20-fold with nothing but a slingshot, 30 pounds of tile grout, and an encyclopedic knowledge of Nancy Drew. But first, your host, Jared Correa. It's the Legal Toolkit, folks. But we don't actually build or fix anything. I mostly just talk a lot about how things are so much better in the 90s. That's right. It's me, your host, Jared Korea. Joe Rogan is shooting himself up with HGH right now, so he was unavailable. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at www.redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, Inc., we build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. You can find out more about Gideon at www.gideon.legal. Before we get to our interview today with Sri Sharma from Haystack, I want to talk about religion. Well, kind of. If we're being totally honest, that's probably a subject I should never touch. But maybe I can get away with talking about a religious allegory, perhaps? Sure, let's try it out. So I actually love to read, believe it or not. I read an absolutely ridiculous amount of books from the age of eight all the way up to my early 30s. I was reading novels in the first grade. It was kind of my jam. Of course, I don't really read anymore, right? Since the internet's turned everybody's brains to mush and kids are expensive. Somebody's got to pay for that trip to Maui. Am I right? Actually, that's not entirely true. I still do read. I read to my kids as often as I can. That is when I can tear them away from all these dipshits on YouTube. If they stay up later any night, it's probably because I get carried away and read too many chapters. So right now I'm reading them book one of the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, I said it. The Chronic What Culls of Narnia. The first book is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it's an overt religious allegory, pretty thinly veiled, in fact. The hero of the book, Aslan, a lion, is a Jesus figure who's resurrected from the dead. Sound familiar? That's pretty on the nose. Uh, it's written by C.S. Lewis, a British author and theologian who is active in the mid-20th century. The C.S. stands for Clive Staples, but who's counting? Now, you may be asking yourself, how is it that a crass iconoclast like yourself, Mr. Korea, would enjoy such a book? Well, in the first instance, I'd like to think of myself along the lines of a John Donne, mincing the sacred along with the profane. 
plus I went to Catholic school for 13 years. But mostly it's because the Chronicles of Narnia kicks ass and because C.S. Lewis is a great writer. Now, let's start with that latter proposition. Now, for a religious writer, which he largely was, I mean, he was a theologian after all, C.S. Lewis was super inventive and also pretty playful. One of his best works, in my opinion, is called The Screw Tape Letters, where he imagines a senior devil tutoring a junior devil about how to do his job. Really cool book. And while it's supposed to be a cautionary tale, the devils also seem like they're having a lot of fun, too. And I feel like old Clive Staples is just cheeky enough to pull that off and straddle the fence. Of course, C.S. Lewis could also take things in an entirely separate direction. His essay collection, A Grief Observed, about the death of his wife is profoundly moving, actually. I mean, I go way back, way back catalog on C.S. Lewis. I've even read Till We Have Faces, his last unpopular novel that resets a pagan Greek myth in service of answering deep religious questions, the kind you ponder when you're stoned on the field. Not that I would know. It's actually a really good book. But for all those mature works of fiction, I still like The Chronicles of Narnia the best. The first book is still the best of the best. There are seven. Uh, the last book's called The Last Battle. That's pretty dope. It's basically the book of Revelation for kids. Fucked up kids, but kids. I especially like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I loved it when I was a kid because it dealt with what I felt at the time were pretty adult themes. Animals were turned to stone or killed. There was a vicious wolf that led a secret police organization. Edmund's kind of a bastard. The witch is super evil and frightening. Aslan gets his mane shaved off and is stabbed to death. I mean, C.S. Lewis was a real G. I felt like really bad shit could happen at any time when I was reading these books. And that's thrilling when you're a kid. And that feeling just never left me. Plus, the end of the book is a total mind fuck. Even now, 35 years later, after I first read it, I still can't quite get my arms around it. It troubles me to this day, seriously. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it is, of course. You just have to read it. So it's really kind of cool now to be reading these books to my kids and secretly hoping that they're as weird as me. And there's a good chance that they are. Every night now, when we brush teeth before bed, they retreat into a corner of the bathroom pull the door closed on themselves and tell me they're going to Narnia. And every time I feel compelled to check just to make sure they're still there. Now, before we talk to our guest, Sri Sharma of Haystack about e-discovery and how obscenely hot it's been this summer, let's see what kind of Turkish delights Joshua Lennon has ready for you. That's right. It's the Clio Legal Trends Report. Minute. Up now. Did you know that three out of four lawyers are meeting with clients virtually, storing firm data in the cloud, accepting payments online, and nearly two-thirds of law firms support electronic document sharing and e-signatures? I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer in residence at Clio. Beyond the necessity of these technologies in the past year, their value in saving lawyers time and money while also increasing client satisfaction cannot be understated. For the first time, we've seen lawyers adopt new technologies to a degree that we've never seen before in the history of legal practice. What was once a competitive edge has now become a baseline in the legal profession, and you do not want to be left behind. To learn more about these technologies for free, download Clio's Legal Trends Report at clio.com forward slash trends. 
That's Clio, spelled C-L-I-O. Okay, it's about time to get to the shellfish tower from the barking crab that is this podcast. Let's interview our guest. My guest today is Shri Sharma, Vice President of Business Development at Haystack. Shri, welcome to the podcast. Jared, thank you for inviting me to be on. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a really hot day as we record this. Air conditioners are off, so we've got some time constraints here. We can't podcast forever. <laughs> Get to it, Jared. <laughs> You've just made the move to Boston, Massachusetts, right? Which is very close to where I live. And now the summer has been apocalyptic. So what happened here? So I had always been dreaming of living in New England and said to myself... Wait, is that a real thing? That's really? a real thing. It, oh. it happens. I'm proof. Because it's like quaint and interesting. What is it about New England that you find so charming? Well, I had never lived in a place that had seasons, having been mm. born and raised in Southern California and then living in Miami for 17 years. So I said, what's the worst that can happen? And lesson learned, don't ask what's the worst that can happen because you summon a global pandemic. <laughs> yes. And then whatever supreme being exists was like, global pandemic, heat wave, <laughs> murder hornets. Welcome. Welcome to New England. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much how it went. Oh, boy. All right. Let's talk about happier subjects. How about e-discovery? What about that? <laughs> what's happy like e-discovery? <laughs> I know nothing about e-discovery but I'd like this podcast to be good. So maybe you could talk to me like an idiot and there shouldn't be much pretending involved there about <laughs> in general, what e-discovery is, what that means in 2020 versus like 2010 and just get folks up to speed on like what that encapsulates. And then we could talk specifically about how it affects probably small to mid-sized firms, which is probably most of the people who are going to be listening to the show. So I will not explain anything to you like you're an idiot, but it uh, that does remind me of something an old law school professor of mine used to say, which was, explain it to me like I'm six. All right, that's better. Okay, so discovery, as you know, being the phase of litigation where both sides have the right and obligation to exchange non-privileged material that's relevant to their claims and defenses, mm -hmm. the E that we have added onto the front of discovery simply pays homage to the fact that nobody keeps bankers' boxes full of paper records, and so no one's going during the discovery process to an old musty warehouse to sort through a bunch right. of dead flattened spiders and try <laughs> to find information that might need to be produced to opposing counsel or to the regulators, for example. So uh, what has sprung up surrounding this entire process is the EDRM, Electronic Discovery Reference Model. So you can think of it flowchart style, left to right. On the left-hand side, it starts with information governance, data mapping, where does your information reside? So in the event of a collection circumstance, you can quickly put your hands on the data, which can be and frequently is in 2021, found <laughs> in a variety of disparate sources. And we refer to that information as ESI, which stands for Electronically Stored Information. Okay, this, this is good. Can, can we stop for one second there? Because I'm already lost. So ESI, I get that. EDRM, uh, is that a set of standards that somebody's developed? Yes. The okay. Sedona Conference is what this team, uh, it's a think tank in the e-discovery world. 
Okay, so the EDRM is coming out of the uh, Stona conference. And then you talked a little bit about information governance, and then there was another part there as well that I forget. Sorry. So the information governance part is really, if I'm understanding this correctly, just locating where the information is or storing it in the right spot kind of deal. And it's understanding in advance where the data resides. So you're not ah, scrambling gotcha. when you do need to collect it to understand which custodians have which information, is any is anything archived. So this whole process, uh, you can have a can and should have a data map letting you know where where it resides in the first place. Gotcha. Okay. Feel free to continue. I think I'm caught up. So the next step is going to be once you've conducted your collections and you've conducted them, presumably in a forensically sound manner, which means in a way that does not alter any of the underlying characteristics of the data in the course mm. of its collection. Preserving the data in an appropriate way. Okay. Yes. And going about your collections attempt in a way that retains as much as possible the data in a manner that renders it viewable, visible, um, listenable, whatever the word is, uh, <laughs> that is most similar to the way in which it would appear in its ordinary course of use. So for example, okay. if it's Slack data, the collections methods have evolved to be able to collect Slack Teams, uh, Microsoft Teams or Facebook data in a nice. way yeah. that is similar to how they're going to appear in the ordinary course of Facebooking, for example. That, well, that has to be a massive challenge, right? Because there's so many of these tools that proliferate and become popular. And even those that are less than popular, you still have to capture those in some cases as well. Not everybody's using Slack or Teams for collaboration. I would imagine that that's going to be one of the toughest parts of this. As I understand it, it is. Tools and technologies in the e-discovery world need to evolve as quickly as tools and technologies in the ESI world are evolving. Right. You just, you have to keep up. Well put, yes. So having conducted your collections, and the next step is going to be processing, where you mm. are pulling the relevant information and document properties from the data. So you're extracting the metadata. And what does that mean? When was a Microsoft Word document authored? Or when was yeah. an email sent? Who were the recipients? Uh, was it opened? Were there read receipts on? Next stop on the way is going to be where I have spent the majority of my e-discovery life, which is sending the data that has been collected and sorted to teams of document review attorneys and working with outside counsel, working with the litigant to figure out what are the parameters of this review, what's the deadline, what are we looking for, what are hot documents. Of course, oh, what's, a, what's a hot document? That sounds exciting. <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. Many years ago, I was working on a matter that was not litigation. It was an internal investigation. Mm -hmm. And outside counsel called me and said, no, she sent me an email saying, please call me immediately. And oh, boy. I wanted to do Never this again. via email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you just email me or text me? <laughs> <laughs> Send me a homing pigeon. So uh, we got on the phone, and she seemed incredibly uncomfortable. And oh, boy. finally uh, hemmed and hawed and finally came to this. And she said, listen. So, Jared, this was a uh, family-owned business. Mm -hmm. 
not necessarily a small business, but it was a couple uh, yeah. at the helm. And it turns out that the husband was having a series of affairs and oh. conducting his affairs with, as one does, his work email. And, Naturally, uh, right? He couldn't go to the <laughs> AOL.com account for that? <laughs> wow, on. throwing it way back. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she. Uh, the purpose of the conversation with outside counsel was, could you please give us a heads up if you, in the course of your review, encounter any of these uh, hot documents, oh, if you will, so that yeah. we can give the gentleman a heads up in advance uh, so that he can do his his damage control preemptive. Wow. So that, that, that would be the hottest of hot documents in that case. <laughs> exactly. And customarily, a hot document would be more like something that's a, you know, the Perry Mason smoking gun document that you would come into the courtroom waving around. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. This is great. I love diving into these terms of art. So what you, what you have been doing is kind of like coordinating the effort among these disparate players, right? That's an awfully, awfully elegant way of saying it, yes. Oh, thank you. You're too kind. But I would imagine something like this needs somebody to quarterback the operation. I don't know if you've heard, but um, a lot of the lawyers I know are not super technically savvy. So anytime you put an E in front of something, especially something as robust as discovery, that can be a challenge. So I guess like from your perspective, who is the most difficult to deal with in terms of these relationships? the attorneys, the litigants, others involved? I don't know that there's intuitively any particular party who I have found most difficult to deal with. I think what can be a challenge is navigating different stakeholders who are coming to yeah. the table with different interests. So mm. frequently you have the litigants in-house counsel that is understandably concerned with cost. You have outside counsel that is not unconcerned with cost for its client, but outside counsel's paramount concern frequently is the defensibility of the review. And right. so coming in as a third party, and in theory the, the technology expert, it can be difficult to thread that needle between, particularly if both of those two parties have an established relationship, then you're coming in as a... Um, no, an outsider, like the third wheel, wheel, right? Yeah. I I was trying to find a, a more delicate word than that. But yeah, let's go with third wheel. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can be blunt. <laughs> so in terms of the work that gets done on e-discovery, I would imagine that cost is, is a sticking point for a lot of this. I can imagine, well, I can't I, more than imagine, like I know this can get really, really costly. So I'm just wondering on behalf of like firms that are listening to this, is there a way to do this that's cost-effective? My advice and cost can and should be a concern. I will cite to you a statistic that is hotly contested and nevertheless frequently thrown around, and that is that in this entire process I have described, 80% of the costs are typically spent on the document review. So that's an area where... Mm. It's ripe for uh, yeah. That's technology. really interesting. Yeah, I, that's the human component. Yeah, I was going to say that's still mostly done by humans. But as you were just about to say, there's some opportunities to add more technology to that, right? 
There certainly are lots of opportunities for reducing the data set. So some of the tools and technologies that can be implemented, you can bring what might have started as a 3 million document data set down very steeply. Mm. So you can reduce the data set at inception of the review before it goes into the hands of the document review team, but it can also be an iterative process. Some other tools have the ability to bubble to the top of the pile from which the document reviewers are pulling those documents that are predicted by the system based on ongoing review to be the most likely to be relevant. Hmm. What can happen with this method of active learning is you can reach a certain point where that system is predicting to you that there are 80,000 documents that remain unreviewed and it can separate into tranches with a corresponding percentage likelihood of responsiveness, Mm. all of those 80,000 documents. So you, as the ALSP, you can consult with outside counsel and the litigant as needed to have conversations about when it makes sense and retains a defensible result to cut off review. Okay. Huh. So there's a lot of mechanisms that you could pull here to potentially reduce cost. And then one of the moving forward, I suppose, would be, I guess, do you envision a point in time where large-scale e-discovery could be conducted without document review people? Do you think there's a world in which this can be done entirely using software? I think if there is such a world, it exists not in the coming two or three years. Yeah, that's fair. So we're thinking like five, ten years down the line for something like that. Based on what I have seen and how I am watching the industry evolve, I believe that for the foreseeable future, there will always be a human element in the document review. Hmm. So I got one more question for you that I want to address before we get to the next segment. And that is, I feel like e-discovery is probably going to touch every attorney at some point in their career, even small firm attorneys. So if you're somebody who doesn't deal with e-discovery on a regular basis, or maybe it's the first time you're trying to conduct it, what should you know going in that can make it a little bit more seamless and streamlined for your firm? I don't know that this is uh, the answer that you're looking for, but my advice would be you should know that there are competent ALSPs out there who can and should be brought in as early as possible in the process. And I think, Jared, you and I have had some side conversations about courts being much less likely to be sympathetic to claims of accidental spoliation now than Uh, they might have been five years ago. And so there is a growing, regardless of uh, whether you're a sole practitioner or a practitioner at big law, there is a growing expectation from courts that there be a relatively high degree of competence that you be current and conversant in the tools and technologies of ESI. So it really becomes incumbent, I think, particularly on small firms to conduct a realistic appraisal of their own degree of facility with the tools and technologies out there for Mm. electronically stored information and to bring in competent outside experts if there's any doubt of their own abilities. I think that's a great answer. Like, and I think this is happening in places other than the discovery as well. Like, I think what's been made clear over the last year and a half is that lawyers just have to do a better job understanding and utilizing technology 
that's not necessarily just germane to e-discovery. But I thought, I thought that was great. Yeah, seek out helpful providers as well, for sure. Shri, this is great. Thank you. Well, it was wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, well, for wait, you don't, don't leave. Yeah, we got a whole other oh. segment to do. I, I mean, I was ready to X out of this call and be, go on <laughs> my way. What no, we no, we got, we got more. Oh, you'll see. You'll see in a moment. <laughs> okay. All right, everybody. That was Shri Sharma from Haystack. As I mentioned, Shri will be back soon, so sit tight. That's right. We'll take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then stay tuned for the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. (laughs) (laughs) As the largest legal-only call center in the U.S., Alert Communications helps law firms and legal marketing agencies with new client intake. Alert captures and responds to all leads 24-7, 365 as an extension of your firm in both Spanish and English. Alert uses proven intake methods, customizing responses as needed, which earns the trust of clients and improves client retention. To find out how Alert can help your law office, call 866-827-5568 or visit alertcommunications.com slash LTN. Welcome to the rear end of the Legal Toolkit. As promised, it's the rump roast. It's a grab bag of topics, all of my choosing, because it's my podcast. Shri, it's been super hot this summer, right? Super hot. And that's coming from somebody who spent 17 years in Miami, as I said. Do you feel like it's been hotter here in Boston than it was recently in Miami? I mean, I feel like it's like 90 degrees every day here and humid. It's, it's been punishingly hot. I guess it turns out that motherfucker Al Gore was right. Now. (laughs) The guy who invented the internet? That guy. Shri, I don't usually talk about the weather on this show, but I feel like if anybody can make it fun, it would probably be you. Oh my God, we're doing a weather segment? Is that what's happening? It's happening right now. In honor (laughs) of these horribly oppressive heat waves, we're going to introduce a new game to the show. I'm calling it the heat index. Basically, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about weather. And hot stuff. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm going to be ready right after I give you this commentary that you invite me on to your podcast and we talk about e-discovery and weather. I thought it would be so, fun. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know what listenership numbers you get. On I, this. I, I can't understand if it's fun in an ironic or unironic way, but we'll figure that out. <laughs> okay, let's do this thing. All right, here we go. I'm going to throw some softballs your way first, just to ease you into this. And then we'll get uh, into some deeper questions. Question number one. You spent some time in Miami. What's the name of the NBA team in Miami? The Miami Heat. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. Go Lakers. Oh, are you a Lakers fan? I was born and raised in Southern California. If you cut open my veins, I I bleed purple and gold. Oh, I hate the Lakers with every (gasps) fiber of my being. I got to go. I got to (laughs) go. I can't even tell you how much I hate the Lakers. <laughs> I'm how having a visceral reaction to this right now. <laughs> but I that's cannot okay. we can... apologize for my hometown love. <laughs> that's all right. I'm from Boston. I like the Celtics. We can, we can move on. We can move on. All right. Question number two. We're still in the softball area. The 1995 movie that starred both Al Pacino and Robert De Niro was called... So this isn't a softball because I live under a rock and don't watch movies. So I'm going to say Scarface. Now it's heat. (laughs) Oh, oh, I see where I was. I was supposed to get that. I was supposed to get that. Okay. 
<laughs> All right, one more. We'll do one more softball question. You got this. Complete the title of this Glenn Fry song released from the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack in 1984. The blank is on. <laughs> okay, at least two out of three. The heat is on. <laughs> All right, you did great. Those are the softball questions. Now, let's get into a few questions that'll be a little harder. Okay. Okay. When will the sun die? Five years from now? According to Al Gore. Five billion years from now? Or 50 billion years from now? I'm going to go with option B. Yes, correct. Five no billion way. years from now, our sun will die. Sadness. Although, I'll be less than dust at that point. So yeah. I'll be all right with it. You and me both. Okay. Uh, let's stick with the sun theme. In a 1961 Twilight Zone episode, the sun is hurtling closer to the earth and the situation is becoming dire. The twist is that the protagonist has a fever and was only dreaming. The sun is actually moving further away from the earth and the planet's getting colder. God damn, I love the Twilight Zone. Okay, what's the title of this episode? Please tell me you're a Twilight Zone fan. I'm not. The sun also rises. I, I don't know. Oh, that's a, gra that's a great guess. That's a great guess. All right, so this is called The Midnight Sun. Tremendous episode of The Twilight Zone. So tell me, I have to know, have you seen an episode of The Twilight Zone before? or Years and years ago. Ah, oh, man. I love The Twilight. I do Twilight Zone marathons with my kids. It's a great show. Where, can I, where can I find reruns? Netflix. Okay. Midnight Sun. All right, I got two more questions for you. And then we'll let you go. How much heat is required to incinerate a tooth? And when I say this, let me just tell people this is not personal experience. I'm not a serial killer or anything. Um, is it 200 degrees Fahrenheit? 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit? Or 20,000 degrees Fahrenheit? And let me just be clear. I'm asking for the heat required to incinerate a tooth, completely obliterate it. 200 degrees, 2,000 degrees, 20,000 degrees. I'm going to go with... 20,000 degrees. Oh, that's a good guess. But it 2, is actually 2,000 degrees. I probably would have gone with that number too. I was just thinking that teeth never seem to, that they're always the last things. Uh, that's why I was interested in this question. Okay. Yeah, forensics, like teeth are always the last thing. That's why I was interested in Googling this. Again, no personal experience with burning teeth. That would be really fucking weird. Okay, <laughs> I got one more question for you. What is the hottest pepper in the world? I'm going to give you three choices. One of them is correct. Is it the Carolina Reaper, the Ghost Pepper, or the Satanic Panic? <laughs> I even made one of those D? up. I was no, like, no, is no. there option D? Jared just made this up. <laughs> they, uh, no, they all have these names. Only one of these is made up. Carolina Reaper, Ghost Pepper, or the Satanic Panic? I feel like it's the Ghost Pepper. Oh, good guess. It's actually the Carolina Reaper. Appropriately named. They grow this pepper to ensure this, like the hottest pepper in the world. So here's here's some fun. So there is a method for measuring the heat of hot peppers. There's a special scale for this. It's called the Scoville scale. And this thing is 2.2 million Scoville heat units. And they do this by measuring the concentration of what are called capsaconoids because... Capsaicin is the chemical responsible for the spicy sensation in a pepper. We're here to teach the masses about random shit at the end of the podcast. So thank you for helping to contribute to that. 
I mean, this is really helpful. I always want to make the world a better place. So I hope like next time we get together, we can talk a little bit about the Twilight Zone. That would be fantastic. I will have watched the episode by then. <laughs> Excellent. So that was it. That was the rump roast. Thank you, Shri. You're on fire. That's what I did there. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, thanks for coming on the show. You were great. Thank you for having me, Jared. Excellent. All right. If you want to find out more about Shri Sharma, probably check out her LinkedIn and visit haystackid.com. That's H-A-Y-S-T-A-C-K-I-D.com for more information about Haystack e-discovery. Now, for the 752 of you listening in Florida, Massachusetts, that's right, there's Florida, Massachusetts, our Spotify playlist for this week's show is Hot Songs. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, the heat is on. It appears we've run out of time for me to tell you how to multiply your revenue 20-fold. I guess you'll just have to reread the Nancy Drew series yourself. That'll do it for another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast, where my beads of sweat are sweating. (laughs) 